Welcome to Espresso Shot. I'm Sarah. Uh, I am the director here at the Annenberg Presidential Conference Center. I have no idea how many years I've been in the industry at this point. I feel like they're all blurred together. Uh, just been doing this a while. That's about all about me. <laughs> and I'm TJ. Uh, I'm an event manager here at the Annenberg Presidential Conference Center. Um, I've been event managing for three and a half years. Don't know. Something bro. like that. Um, but have been in the event industry for a long time. Espresso Shot is a podcast about the staff, faculty, and students of the Bush School of Government and Public Service. The recordings take place in our studio here at the Annenberg Presidential Conference Center, the Allen Building, or the comfort of the guest's office. Each episode, we will inform you of the individual's unique qualities, contributions they bring to the college, their work and or experience throughout their time here. All right, today we're speaking with Ambassador Andrew Natsios. We received a Bachelor of Arts degree in History from Georgetown University and a Master's from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He served in the Massachusetts House of Representatives, 1975 to 1987, and in state government, 1999 to 2001, as the Secretary of Administration and Finance. He was a member of the U.S. Army Reserves for 23 years, served in the Gulf War in 1991, and was a lieutenant colonel when he retired in 1995. He was the U.S. Special Envoy of Sudan, 2006 to 2007, to deal with the Darfur crisis and the North-South Peace Agreement. Ambassador's not, Ambassador Natsios's bio is linked below. Please take a moment to read further on all of his accomplishments. Welcome, Welcome. Andrew. Yes. Thank you very much. May we call, call you Andrew? Andrew? Yes, you okay. can certainly call me Andrew. That's what I prefer. <laughs> okay. That's a lot of bio. <laughs> and I'm and that's not even, that's like a tenth of it. A blip? Yeah, it's a little blip. Because we got it off the website and I started reading. I was like, whoa, I can make this really long. <laughs> but anyway. it's it's amazing. You've had a, a very long, full, good, yeah, full and good career, sounds. I've had three careers. Yes. One in state government, one internationally, and then one as an academic. That's how I divide it up. Yeah. yeah. I, have, I have two. I've been to parenting. I have many. Um, <laughs> yes, you do. You have like nine lives. All of the lives. All the lives. All right. Well, we're just going to jump right in. Sure. What is your position within the Bush School? So I am a, uh, there are several titles they gave me. I don't know which one you I saw use. on the door. Right. It's a professor of the practice. Uh, it means that I'm not a tenure track professor. They also said uh, you were an executive professor, which is a term that doesn't exist at other universities. And so my friends in Washington keep saying, what is an executive professor? It's someone who has had executive experience running large institutions. And if you have, there are 20, I think, in the university like that. I said, that kind of sounds nice, even though no one knows what it means. But I, I said, I didn't make any difference to me what you call me. People call me some bad things sometimes too. Who <laughs> don't agree with me on things. So, but those. So I'm a I'm a professor here, and I uh, am also the director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs, which was set up by General Brent Scowcroft, one of President Bush 41's best friends and national security advisor, arguably one of our greatest national security advisors in American history, in the post World War II period when the position was created. Uh, he was, uh, he just died actually two years ago and 
We have an advisory committee of very prominent people for the Institute. And he came in, he was 95 years old to the last meeting in just before the pandemic started. It was in uh, late 2019, he came in in a walker and he st stayed through the whole thing and listened very carefully. And uh, we should have taken a picture with him. That's the one thing I regret. And then he had a stroke a month later and then went into a nursing and he died uh, sadly. But um, uh, it, it's just to have carry his name means a lot in the international affairs community because he's so respected. Yeah. Have, okay, so forgive So me. I've been here for 10 years now. I was gonna say, yeah, so forgive right. me for not knowing. So are you the original first director of School No, Park? no, no, okay. no. There were uh, several before. Ambassador uh, Larry Knapper was okay. the acting director for five years. He sits next door. Uh, to, to us. He's a retired uh, career, senior career foreign service officer, a very distinguished career. He was ambassador to Latvia. All the three Baltic states now are very nervous about what Putin's next move will be. I could make some comments about that, but I, <laughs> I, we're very, I am very worried that he's not going to stop with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And there's some evidence that he is, has ambitions to, to move out of Ukraine, which, which is very dangerous. But um, so uh, this, you're in the Skokraft Institute, these, these offices here. Right on. Oh, so he's been here for, for 10 years, at least with Skokraft. 10 years, right. I've been at Skokraft nine years okay. as a professor, 10 years. Okay. I just want a clarification. Because oh, right. I guessed last time with Professor Brown and I totally misheard. Yes. <laughs> so what was your main draw to come to the Bush School? Well, President Bush, but Andy Card was the acting dean. Uh, Andy Card was the chief of staff to President Bush 43W, as we call him. And he was the deputy chief of staff to 41 when he was president. And he is one of my oldest friends for 50 years, actually. We met when we both ran for this Massachusetts House of Representatives in 1972. We both lost narrowly. Then we ran again in 74 and won. And we've been best friends ever since. He was the chairman and I was the co-chairman of Bush 41's campaign in Massachusetts when he ran in 1979, 43 years ago, for president. But he lost to Ronald Reagan, and then Ronald Reagan nominated him to be his vice president. And Andy and I, and then a, a guy named Paul Salucci, who is a, also a state representative, and then a state senator, then lieutenant governor, and then governor, and then ambassador to Canada. <laughs> he was the other co-chairman with a a judge who later became a judge, Leon Lombardi. So the three, the four of us were young legislators in our 20s when we ran Bush's campaign for president in Massachusetts, not for the whole country, just for Massachusetts in 1979. Wow. And that's, so that's the other draw. Andy said, would you come down and give a lecture? And I gave a lecture on uh, food and political upheavals and revolutions mm -hmm. and whether there's a relationship. We are now seeing a massive increase in food prices. Mm -hmm. I believe that will cause uh, civil wars, mm -hmm. revolutions, and political upheavals around the globe because it happened once before, and that's exactly what happened. There's increasing archival evidence now that one of the major drivers of World War II was food. Hitler was obsessed with it. I'm reading his horrible book, Mein Kampf, but he's he talks about food in it because Almost a million Germans died of starvation in the First World War. Mm -hmm. uh, we know the Japanese are obsessed with food as well. And so I, I'm on the development side of international affairs, where we do international development, humanitarian assistance and all that. And people think these are 
you know, nice little issues. They're not just nice little issues. They affect mm -hmm. war and peace. They affect the international order. The world food system is mostly private. People don't even think it know it exists, but it feeds the world. And there are a lot of vulnerabilities in it, which we're about to find out in a very disturbing way. If food prices increased by a thousand percent in the next two months, what do you think would happen in the United States? Your kids are already vegetarian. So in most, yeah, my kids are. We have like it would be yeah. We'd be eating oatmeal yeah. three times yeah. a day. Is what would happen. But but I'll, I can I teach a course in famines and and, and war. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the uh, uh, the Somali famine, for example, of nineteen when was it? Uh, it was Bush forty one, so it was nineteen ninety one, ninety two. Food prices increased eight hundred to twelve hundred percent in a matter of six months, and that's what caused a quarter of a million people to starve to death because they didn't have the money to to buy the food. And um, when food prices increase very rapidly. And very dramatically, then you have problems, political problems, and military problems too. Mm -hmm. I'm even seeing it. We have cows, and so the price of hay has skyrocketed because the price of gas has skyrocketed. So in order to bale the hay, you gotta have gas yep. to run the balers. Um, How many cows do you have? Forty-seven heads. You won't go hungry. No, <laughs> but they might. Yeah, yeah, you that, know? that's I mean, right. Depending on if we end up having a really bad summer or not sure. enough rain in the spring, we don't have the gas, the grass to supplement it. So we have to, have to buy to hay buy and feed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then those prices go up. Well, it's like a snowball effect. Well, I think we're about to see this, and I don't think policymakers in Washington are. I've been warning them. Uh, there are, I think it's twelve or thirteen choke points for the uh, shipping around the world. One of them is the Panama Canal, one is the Suez Canal. Mm -hmm. We saw what happened when a Japanese tanker got into trouble in the Suez Canal and blocked the canal. Mm -hmm. So instead of going through the canal to the Indian Ocean from the Mediterranean, shipping companies had to go around the Horn of Africa. And that's much longer, it's much more expensive. Uh, it's dangerous actually because of the, the Horn of Africa. Not the Horn of Africa, I'm sorry, the, the tip of Africa in the south. But in any case, the, um, these choke points are very vulnerable. And if several of them shut down at the same time because of an international war or crisis or uh, all sorts of things could happen to shut them down, it would affect the ability to feed the world because a lot of the food is shipped that we eat, mm -hmm. is shipped on the high seas. And if those choke points shut down, we've got a big problem. Texas is economy is dependent to some degree on the Panama Canal because we ship a lot of our, our, our cattle to Asia mm -hmm. and we go through the Panama Canal to do that. Anyway. Wow. Yeah, it's definitely a scary time right now. Yes, it is. I know. I always say my favorite event was the pandemic event that we say, did yeah, back in about 2019. Yeah. And that was one of the biggest things was that y'all take this information and you lobby for, you know, lawmakers to change what they're doing. And that was what, October, November, October. Yeah. And then that following February, we started getting warnings of everything that y'all were talking about in this symposium was happening. Yeah. I'll tell and you, I was just, like, yeah, it's, no. it's, we, for six years, we had <laughs> pandemic symposiums mm -hmm. here on the risk of a pandemic. This is long before mm -hmm. COVID. Right. We issued these papers and people read them. I have to tell you an interesting story though. We, the, 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 
the uh, way in which the rotation worked is we would have our conference here mm -hmm. the symposium. And first when we did it, I said, this is so far away from uh, Switzerland where all of the UN agencies are, New York City where the UN is, uh, Washington DC where the capital or London. And so I said, people won't come here. Well, they came and they said things they shouldn't have said. They're, they're very, very controversial. But we, we protected them with uh, what's called the Chatham House rule, that you can mm -hmm. use the information, but you can't quote anybody personally. Mm -hmm. And I pulled people aside and said, why did you say that? We know what you're saying is true. Why are you saying this in public? He said, because we're so far away from Washington and New York and London and uh, that we feel safe here mm. to say exactly what's mm -hmm. true. So we would then take the material and write a policy paper. There are a whole bunch of them outside on the desk. Um, and then we released that paper at the National Press Club in Washington uh, six months later. Well, we had one and C-SPAN co covered it. They covered the whole conference. And um, there is a law, it's called the Pandemic and All Natural Hazards Law that was written by Senator uh, from North Carolina, who's unfortunately retiring, and Ted Kennedy, who's since died. Uh, they were the co-sponsors, but the bill it has to be renewed every five year, five or six years. Was, was held up for six months in committee for no good reason, it was just politics. Mm -hmm. Some congressional staffers were watching the C-SPAN event on television that the Bush School had at, mm -hmm. uh, in the National Press Club. They got so scared, they reported the bill out immediately. They called the senators who were chairman and said, we can't, if there's a pandemic and this bill is stuck here, we're gonna be, we're gonna be get blamed. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they reported it out. And then a few months later, the pandemic started. Yeah. And, and the, the interesting thing is one of the provisions of that law is an emergency um, provision that allows the Food and Drug Administration to approve vaccines at a much more rapid rate that they would not normally be able to do legally. So if that law had not been through, we wouldn't have vaccines right now. So it was done as a result of the conference we held mm -hmm. to release the paper that came out of the symposium here. So. These policy papers sound a little uh, distant, and and but they have an effect on all of us. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. anyway, I don't feel like they're distant. Every time we've hosted that symposium in our building, I learned something every year. No, that's good. I love that symposium. It's good. Yeah. It's always been a, a very well-run one and very informative for Thank as you. much as we are allowed to be a part of. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but I feel like we were talking with Professor Brown. I feel very fortunate that we get to be a part of a lot of these things because we get such a diverse experience with sure. just from being at work, being able to listen to all of these conferences. Right. In no other position that I've ever had in any other job would I have gotten information like this. Sure. Firsthand. Yeah. It feels special. Right. <laughs> all right. So can you tell us what major projects or papers that you're working on? Well, uh, 19... Two, I'm sorry, 2014, we had a conference on Putin's Russia. I'm sorry, 2016, we had it. And a series of scholars and journalists who are experts in Putin's Russia presented papers. And we were going to publish them as a book, but I couldn't get a publishing company to publish them because they were regarded as too dark and too um, sinister. And uh, some of the scholars made sarcastic remarks. You know, he's really just a pragmatist. He's not that bad. Let's not uh, paint him as a monster or anything. And we didn't paint him as a monster. We just said, this guy is not a normal head of state. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we published them in a little journal called the South Central Review. 
that is the editor of which is Joe Golson, a professor from the uh, the uh, International Studies Program, and, and uh, he's going to join us here at the Bush School because the part of the department's being moved into the Bush School by the reorganization of the president of the university. And we're welcoming him. He's going to sit two seats from here. We're, he runs the he also runs the French Institute. Anyway, he edits this small journal as a very small circulation, and he agreed to publish them just so we have them in print. Well, eight days ago, we had the world changed, and Joe was in here, and he said, Andrew, why don't we go back to Johns Hopkins University Press, which publishes the journal, but it has a circulation of 800. It's not exactly, it, it, you can get access to it through the Muse system of any library in the world, but still not many people read it. So we just got word yesterday, we, we, Joe asked the editors at John, which is one of the leading public uh, uh, publishing houses, uh, scholarly publishing houses in the country. And so it would be really prestigious for us to publish through them. They're definitely interested in publishing now. We had not asked them before. We asked other publishing houses and they said no. I think anybody would say yes now because a lot of what we wrote in that book, I mean, that uh, those essays, all happened. And our interpretation of who Putin was turns out to be accurate, while a lot of other people who are being naive were wrong. So out of curiosity, so and there's another project we're working oh, on, just to mention I'm another sorry. one. So we, we did a book on uh, predicting pandemics. It was, it was mm -hmm. published by Texas A&M Press about six months before the pandemic started. Uh, and if you read it, a lot of the stuff that happens in the book, we predicted not that COVID would happen, but people's reaction and what the problems would be and all that. Well, we're publishing another book edited by uh, Dr. Christy Blackburn, who used to be the deputy head of the pandemic program, who now is a professor at um, Sam Houston State. And it's co-edited by uh, Dr. Jerry Parker, my good friend, who is the head of the pandemic program here and the associate dean of the veterinary school and the head of uh, One Health, which is a worldwide program to combine animal health with human health, the study of it, because the two are very intimately related. And uh, Jerry is the other co-editor, and it's a series of essays on the consequences of COVID-19. It's a very powerful book. And we're now finishing the final, the scholars have reviewed it, we've made comments, we're adding three or four new chapters, and we hope that'll be up maybe by the end of the year. So those are two big projects we're working on right now. Amazing. Yeah. Next project's going to be a book called I Told You So. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's actually my question. Okay. Do you feel like you have a, a pretty strong intuition about these things, able to predict Well, I, I, I'm not, I'm, you can judge yourself. I wrote an article for um, the Washington Quarterly, which is a journal in Washington, D.C. It's now part of George Washington University, it used to be independent of the university. But they published an article I wrote I think it was in 2007 or eight. And it was on the risk of worldwide upheavals politically if food price increases dramatically increased. And it was several people who read it said, Andrew, this is not gonna happen. Why, why did you write this? And I'm surprised they're publishing it, you know? Well, within about a year, uh, there was a massive increase in food prices. There were 50, um, uh, countries that faced coup d'etats. The Haitian government fell. The prime minister was removed from office because food prices increased so much. Uh, the the uh, Arab Spring that you've heard about where there was a revolution in Egypt 
Libya that caused the current Libya chaos, Syria, the Syrian civil war, Yemen, there's another civil war in Yemen, and uh, Tunisia. All of those experienced political upheavals and civil wars. All of them were driven by massive food price increases, except for Syria, which had a drought for two years and all a million, half a million farmers left the rural areas because the economy had collapsed and they went to the city. That's what caused the revolt there. All of these were related to food. And people missed that. They, they, they looked at the event itself instead of what the precipitating events were before the crisis, political crisis took place. So I did publish that. And um, it, again, it was sort of dismissed until after the upheavals took place. And then people said, well, this is what you said in the article. I said, yes, yes, I did. And, you know, now I do write articles warning about things that they don't happen. <laughs> or haven't happened yet. Yes. Yeah, I haven't happened yet. Funny. So I'm not always right. But I don't I don't put a lot of emphasis on when I'm yeah. inaccurate in my predictions. <laughs> so is it your background in history that helps you see? Because, I mean, everybody always says, like, history repeats itself. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always that circle. I'll tell you what I think it is. I don't think I'm a prophet or anything like that. It's because I've had a public career in the real world, Mm -hmm. administering large agencies and programs with a lot of data and information from the field, from the world, uh, seeing what's actually happening. And then I became an academic and I began reading all of the theoretical frameworks and the literature and all that. And if you put those two together, it's very powerful. The problem is academics frequently have no experience in the, the public world, and and people who are in the public world don't read all the literature. I wish, I wish I had read all the books on development theory before I taught at Georgetown, before the Bush School, uh, because if I had, I would have run USAID, our foreign aid program, differently. But I didn't have time to read all this stuff. So I do think there is a huge value, an enormous value, in a school like the Bush School that combines practitioner professors like me with pure academics who just do the research and and, and argue about theory and all that. Uh, if you put the two together, you can actually predict the future. But the problem is there's a, a gap between the two, mm-hmm. the two worlds of the real world. I think academics think they're looking at the real world, but I don't always think they are. And I think the problem with public administrators is they don't read the research because a lot of the things we assume when we're in office are turn out what academics study it and they say, well, it's actually not true. Some academics. So, so it, it, it's, it's very mixed. And I think if you merge the two together, it's really very ideal. Collaboration is strong. Yeah. At least here. I mean, my, all my experience with the Bush School, everything's been so is a, a very large team effort and everyone pulling from all their experiences and everything that we're offered just through the college yes. itself is just these students are very lucky oh and i will comment on that <laughs> <laughs> they should feel lucky yeah. i'll put it that yeah. way because i feel lucky and i don't even go to school here <laughs> well we're only 20 years old and we've been rising every year in yeah. the rankings mm-hmm. and so we're becoming more and more prominent i think under the leadership of dean welch we now have a a, uh, we're not supposed to call it a campus in DC. It's a satellite teaching site. That's mm-hmm. the proper legal term. It's I don't want to get into trouble and get arrested for using the wrong term. To you won't. It. I'll say it for you. So if anyone gets in trouble, be me. Right. And so we have that. That's raised the visibility in mm-hmm. Washington. Yeah. Uh, and we now have the second floor and mm-hmm. of this building. And, and the, 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 the dean redesigned the whole building 
or the, the, the middle and the bottom floor. And it's much more accessible for students. They're, they're staying here after class because before there was no space for the right. students to study. And so that's very helpful. And we're expanding the faculty. And I think the decisions of the um, president to, uh, she, she was very complimentary of the Bush School and the management reorganization that she, uh, that she uh, initiated. So I think we have a fan. I know we have a fan in the chancellor. Chancellor's mm -hmm. a big supporter of our pandemic program here. And we have a big, a big uh, supporter in the office of the president. So that's a pretty good team to have you know, on your side. Yeah, very much so. I like it. Mm -hmm. for it. So what's your favorite part about your positions? If there's anyone in particular. Well, uh, you know, everybody gets satisfaction doing different things. I don't like all of the paperwork, I have to just tell you. In this state, I did tell several people, I, I, I won't tell you who, not the dean, okay, <laughs> that this, that Texas is supposed to be very libertarian and very conservative. It's not in terms mm -hmm. of bureaucracy. The paperwork here is worse than the federal government. It's worse than the federal government, which is pretty astonishing thing to say. I've worked in both, I've worked at state level, local level and the national level. The federal government has a lot of paperwork. Texas has more. And it's a very uh, sort of a top-down system. And I don't think that's the healthiest system. They don't mm -hmm. trust anybody to do anything. Every, everything has to be approved by six people. It takes longer. So that's frustrating. However, teaching the students, on the other hand, is very rewarding. And I, I have students I had 14 years ago at Georgetown. They're still emailing me. I know it's happening in the world. My students would never lie to me. And then, you know, I, we, we published, we just published a book early last year, early 2020, I think it was, called Transforming Our World. It's essays on the Bush 41 foreign policy by the people who ran foreign policy. So Condi Rice was at the National Security Council then, this is before she was Secretary of State, of course. She wrote a chapter, Jim Baker wrote a chapter, uh, and, and prominent people are in the book. And Andy Card and I edited the book. That was very satisfying for us to produce that. And uh, these other pieces that we've, read, uh, that we've um, produced, other books and articles and papers are also very rewarding, I think. So I get a lot of personal satisfaction about teaching mm -hmm. and then writing. And so two thirds of my time is doing that. It's the paperwork <laughs> side of it that yeah, I'm not, I'm not too thrilled either. about. Everything takes twice as long. My I, husband asks me all the time, why can't you just do this? I'm like, you don't know what it's like working for the state. It's mm -hmm. ridiculous. Everything takes forever. No more comments. <laughs> I have a, a problem. I, I did a, I did a paper, uh, George P. Bush called me, the state <laughs> land commissioner. And, and, and uh, I didn't know him at all, but Andy Card said, call Andrew. Andrew is an expert. I, I have expertise in natural disasters because I ran that function for Bush 41 in AID. So all of the earthquakes and storms and hurricanes and uh, the volcanic eruptions and pandemics uh, and famines, mm -hmm. civil wars were all what we responded to from a humanitarian standpoint in Bush 41. That's the job I had under, under him. And so George P called me and said, Andy Card told me I should talk to you, and I don't know what. What do you want? How, how could you help me? And I said, Well, I'm not leaving the Bush School, but let's sit down and talk. And I, I said, You know, I do know a lot about emergency response. Do you want me to write a paper for you? 
or a report on how we're responding to Hurricane Harvey because he, the governor put him in charge of a lot of the housing reconstruction. So I went out, I interviewed about 100 people. I spent three months on it one summer and uh, I went down to the coast and mm -hmm. talked to local officials and uh, county, county officials and city officials, mayors and all that. And I wrote a report and there were 18, I think 18 and 19 recommendations. And I said, George, th these are not gonna go through. They're controversial and half of them are at the federal level and we don't have any control over that. He got all, every single one of the state reforms through the legislature. I was just astonished. I said, I, I, one or two of them I, I could see, they're not that controversial, but the rest of them were. Uh, you got them through. He said, yes, I did. And I, I was, it shows his skill, actually. Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, we can't get the federal ones through. He said, that's my next task is to get mm -hmm. the federal ones through. I didn't even check to see whether those went through or not, but it certainly prepared us for the next hurricane. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, some people are not going to like some of these. I said, I know. But I said, the argument you should use when you lobby for these reforms, do you think there are going to be no more hurricanes in mm -hmm. Texas? Because anybody who thinks that is delusional. Right. You know, we've had been having hurricanes here for 400 years. There's a National Weather Service study that goes back 400 years that says we've been, I mean, we're just because of where we are and because of the coastline and the Gulf of Mexico and all that, there's going to be hurricanes here. We're not prepared for them. I think the emergency response system is actually very well run. It's the longer term mm -hmm. uh, reconstruction that's a problem. And then the, what we call a disaster mitigation, the efforts to prevent the damage before the emergency takes place that is not well-developed. It wasn't before. Now it's, it's, it's gradually changing because of the statutory changes. And it's interesting, the governor um, and the commissioner worked together on this. Uh, the governor signed all the reforms, which I compliment him for. And uh, I, I think it went very well. But anyway, it was a that's not what I do here is all international work, but he asked me to do it. And, you know, his grandfather made my career. So I said, I'll do it. <laughs> okay. So besides the DC satellite campus locations, teaching you know, campus, teaching, teaching campus, campus, there we go. Teaching site. Teaching site. Teaching okay. site. That's we'll the quote it correctly. Thing. So what direction do you hope to see the Bush school to go to further down in the well, that's up to the dean, not me. And I mean, he'll he'll tell you, oh, it's all of us working together. But we need a leader, and he's 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 a good leader. He's a strong leader. Um, so he he's 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 accomplished four things. He's created a series of in, other institutes mm -hmm. beyond just us, and they're all raising money, and and that's really good. Two, uh, the building is becoming more just the Bush School. So we're rebranding the he's rebranding the building, which is very important brand recognition helps recruit more students and faculty and improves, improves our image that has an effect on fundraising. Mm -hmm. And he's also, raised, I think just in the last year, he raised $40 million for the endowment. One of the attractiveness parts of the school is President Bush did not want people going to public service with a lot of debt, mm -hmm. student debt. And they're not because the, the, the cost of going here is the lowest in the country by far because of the president's vision. And then Andy Card raised $40 million. And then uh, the mark has raised another $40 million. So uh, that's very important. But again, that's I raise a little money here, but not a huge amount. We've, we've increased the budget from about $150,000 to a half a million dollars a year here at the Scowcroft Institute through grants, private fundraising, 
money the chancellor's given us. Um, and that's helped run the pandemic program. The next thing I wanna do is study the world, we call it the world food system, which is 95% private as it should be, but people haven't studied it very much. They don't understand their vulnerabilities in it. If, the, if there's a, a world war, uh, God forbid that should happen, the world food system is gonna be under severe stress and it's gonna be under stress right now just because of the sanctions regime against Russia. The Ukraine is one of the largest food producers in the world. Those farmers aren't producing food right now. They're not gonna spend the war going on. They're not gonna go out in their fields and plant the crop this coming spring. That will affect food prices all over the world because food is fungible. That is to say food prices in one country because we have a globalized agricultural economy affect food prices in other countries. And that has political implications and military implications, not just nutritional implications. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that needs to be researched and studied so we understand what we're doing when we affect that system, adversely affect the system, or the system has shocks. We call them in, in economics and in my, my disciplines, uh, a shock against the system would be a, an abrupt event that, 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 sh that shakes the foundations of an institution or an economy. Well, then start the garden. I know. Right. I was, just, I was just thinking that. I should grow my own vegetables soon. I only grow watermelons and tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> I have herbs. <laughs> Even then, they don't last. Well, is there anything you'd like to share for anyone considering the Bush School, whether it's faculty, staff, or students? Well, I, I do think that President Bush's vision of um, public service mm -hmm. has sort of gotten lost in the ideological wars across the country. We need people to serve in public office. Whether you're a liberal or a conservative or a moderate centrist, we need people in public office who are dedicated and well-educated and, uh, and read mm -hmm. and can analyze. And that's what you learn at the Bush School. So I, and because we have a mix of practitioners and academics, uh, it's an ideal atmosphere, and there's a lot of collegiality here where we all work together on projects. The, the project, the uh, book on pandemics that we're uh, um, publishing on the consequences of COVID, uh, my good friend Raymond Robertson, who's uh, the head of the, the International Development Program here, uh, wrote a chapter on the economic consequences mm -hmm. of COVID, for example, and then uh, Lefteri Avyakovov is, uh, teaches at the business school. He's one of the world experts in uh, supply chains. He wrote a brilliant chapter on the effect of the pandemic on supply. And we're now seeing the consequences mm -hmm. of that because of the disruption of supply chains and the rising food prices. He wrote a chapter. So we're using the resources mm -hmm. of the university and other schools, not just the Bush School, to do our scholarly work, which I think is, there's so many, it's a jewel. This university is a jewel. People don't know about it outside Texas very well, but it's it, the visibility is rising. And I, I think the Bush School can help not just its own visibility, but the university's visibility. I agree with that. The DC satellite location will be very beneficial. and have a big impact on that. And you're amazing. Yes, I know. I'm like, I'm I feel like we could words. do an entire like day's worth yes. of conversation with you because you're just like a wealth of knowledge. Well, the interesting and thing is like... there is a project uh, of the American Diplomatic Association, which is 
conversations with people on their careers in public life, and they're all uh, they they record them and then they transcribe them and they're at the National Archives and the Library of Congress. And so I had someone come here. She used to work for me, actually. She's a retired senior officer at AIB. She did. She recorded me for two days, and she transcribed it. It was 150 pages. And I said, "Well, I'm not going to write an autobiography, but this is. Uh, it's not just my time in office at, at the federal level. It was also my state career and all that." <clears throat> and so I said, "I am going to give this to my kids and my grandchildren." Mm -hmm. You know, as a so it's it's good to keep a record of what you've done at least from your own point of view, for the historical record. So when people say, why did you do that? You can you can look at the record. You don't just have to guess. Well, not very many people, I guess with podcasts and things like that, you're starting to get back to that, like yes. the oral storytelling sure, and sure, histories sure. like it was hundreds of years ago. Right. We're starting to get back to that. Yes, and I think it's definitely Good something that's much, well, it's much more preferred for this generation. To be able to, you know, they're all about multitasking, doing lots of things, and being sure. able to listen at the same time. Not that they actually absorb everything at one time, but it's an option for them. Sure. But yeah, I agree with you. This has been wonderful. Thank you so Thank much you for having for us over and being able to chat with you. Um, I've been here since 2009 with a short three-year break, and I think this is the first time I've actually had an opportunity to sit down and chat with you. So I, I really do appreciate it. It's nice to meet you both. Yeah. Yeah. We just stand uh, in the we back. We know each other yeah, for, for 10 yeah. years now, but. Uh, I've just mic'd you on stage a few times. Like, yes. you know, well, but we, no we don't. Yeah, we don't get this opportunity very often. Sure. So um, we definitely appreciate you letting us come Thank do you. this. I'm happy yeah. to do it. And letting, you know, potential Bush school yes. students or faculty get to know <laughs> a little bit more about you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yes. Good. I'm here for it. Yes. Right. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Espresso Shot. Make sure to visit our website, apcc.tamu.edu, where you can subscribe to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an exciting show. While you're at it, if you enjoy the show, leave a review or comment, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Or if you're interested in being a guest, email us at apcc.tamu.edu. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.